You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer, and I want to thank you all so much for joining us for this episode. Today, we're going to be discussing how we as healthcare professionals can support LGBTQI patients during their cancer journey. We're going to be joined by Dr. Matthew Shabbat, who is an associate member in cancer epidemiology at the Moffitt Cancer Center. Matt, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So just before we start, I just want to take a minute to reflect just sort of the challenges that all of us have as people, and I think clinicians especially, of wanting to be sensitive to people's identity and their background, and yet not wanting to be intrusive. So I think it's a very important topic to discuss. So I'd like to start up by asking you, it may may be a simple question, but it's one that I think sometimes people are surprised at. What is the difference between sexuality and gender? Right. Well, gender is an identity. This is how somebody may, their inner sense of being a boy, man, girl, woman, or another gender. And there are a variety of ways someone may choose to identify. We hear the terms such as transmasculine, transgender, cisgender, non-binary, where they may not fall in these typical buckets. So that's what we call gender identity. And it doesn't really stop there because when we talk about the whole sort of spectrum or umbrella, that you have things like sex and birth, and we could talk more about these things, but I'll just give you high-level things. Sex at birth, um, gender presentation or expression is another one. Sexual orientation, which I think most of us are familiar with, which is a common term, which is part of the LGBTQI umbrella. And then sexual behavior is really the behavior that somebody practices in their sexual life. And all these things can be very mutually exclusive, and you should never assume any of these terms. So with that in mind, and by the way, I mean, as I'm listening, I'm thinking to myself, yes, you're right. Someone's identity and their expression of it may be different. So thank you for Absolutely. Yeah. Expression is also, you know, a lot of these things, we use the term fluid. They're very fluid, you know, especially expression or sometimes called presentation. You can imagine it's a very realistic situation that someone's presentation or expression may be one way with their friends and family, another way with their friends, one way with their family, one way at work. So you imagine that these things can be very, all of these tend to be very fluid. So with that in mind, what aspects of that, maybe all the aspects or maybe very few, are crucial, are important, are relevant to cancer care, to that setting of someone, you know, coming to see an oncologist? Right. So to simplify all these sort of terminology, it's something called SOGI, sexual orientation and gender identity. And this is something that's been largely ignored in the medical setting, including oncology care. And until recently, we start seeing this uptake of collecting this information. Why it's important for oncology care or healthcare in general, it's because we know that 
the LGBTQ community. It's a health disparate population. It's an underrepresented patient population. It's a population that experiences health disparities in cancer. And so having this frank conversation with your patients about their SOGI will hopefully engage their needs because we know as a disparate population, they have their unique health care needs and have often been a population that's been stigmatized and not receiving the level of care that a cisgender heterosexual population receives. Thank you. So what are the words, because this is a great opportunity for me as a clinician to hear, what are the words to use to ask the question that may be most comfortable for my patient? Right. I think there's a couple of things. You want to know their assigned sex at birth. Don't want to call it biological sex, but it's their chromosomal sex. So you want to know that. But you also want to know their identity, as I already talked about the definition of identity. Sexual orientation is important. Also, you want to know that. Their pronouns. I think that having their pronouns and their name, and I'm avoiding saying preferred pronouns and preferred name because it's not preferred. It's their name and it's their pronoun. So I think those are important. Those are sort of the important aspects to inquire about because one, it's capturing who they are and identifying them. And hopefully it's going to have a better relationship between the patient and caretaker. Because that is one of the things that we often see is that these patients have had inadequate care in the past. And typically in the cancer setting, as you're an oncologist, you know that if it's not a good patient caretaker, healthcare provider relationship, that patient isn't going to be compliant, isn't going to come back for follow-up. They're going to have poor quality of life, in which then leads down to poor cancer outcomes. Right, right. I want to go back, though, because I really want to ask you, what are the words? Do I say, what's your, what pronouns do you use? What name do you go by? Teach me on that, if you would. Sure. I'm going to plug, with I have no affiliation, I'm going to plug the Fenway Institute. And they have some of the standards of how to collect this. So one way is, do you think yourself as straight, heterosexual, lesbian, gay, homosexual, bisexual, or something else? That's your orientation. As far as identity, do you think yourself as male, female, transgender? And then you want to know, the transit gender, is it male to female, female to male? You can ask gender queer when we're talking about identity or some other category. And then Fenway recommends, and there's a couple different ways of, of wording this, but what was your sex assigned at birth on your original birth certificate, male, female? And of course, then, you know, what is your, what, what is your name? What's the name that you go by? Because you may have your name on your driver's license, in your birth certificate and your health insurance, but that may be different what you go by in the databases. And then what are your gender pronouns? He, him, she, her, they, them, or something else. What is your experience when a clinician asks those questions to patients? Again, what have you heard from patients in terms of health disparities? Is there a sense of uh, connection, relief, like, geez, I'm glad they asked, or is it, uh, have, how do people receive that? <laughs> yeah. It's across the spectrum. When we're just talking about folks who are part of the LGBT community, to your point, absolutely, there is a relief because they do want to disclose this, but they want to feel comfortable. And as you can imagine, this is a population that spent, you know, decades, especially if we're talking about older patients where cancer occurs a lot, they've spent decades or entire life 
not being able to disclose this, not being able to have this comfortable. And so you do get a relief and they have this sense of, yeah, relief is the best way to say it, where they can finally disclose this. But you also, rightfully so, patients now are suddenly in the LGBT community are asking, well, why are you asking this? Yes, yeah. Because, yeah, for this, you know, we live in a, a society that's politically charged and sometimes very binary. And we're not talking about identity orientation. We're talking about a very politically charged. Pol and, politics, and, and, yeah. And, yeah, which unfortunately gets involved in everything nowadays. And so you do see that patients in the LGBT community asking, why now are you suddenly asking this? Because I've gone 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years out of my life, never having the opportunity. Suddenly you're asking. So these are two of the stark sort of responses that we see to this. Yeah. And thank you. I mean, I've seen that in my own practice, but I have to say, and I'll be a little, sort of a little off the point for a second, but I do find with my patients in general, when I talk about sexuality, firstly, it's never discussed. And usually people just sort of will take a deep breath and then there's a sense of, I'm happy to talk about it. Or what I've learned to do is sometimes to say to people, can we have a serious conversation? Can we talk about some real important stuff? And it gives my patients, other people in general, a sense it's a little bit of a warning, oh, we're about to talk about something different than usual. And they can say no. Sometimes people say no, but usually people want to discuss it. I agree with you. Oh, it's terrific to hear that. The more I hear stories like this, it's so encouraging. And I work a lot with providers. We've made a provider training, which I think we'll talk about later. But when we interact with patients in the LGBT community and hear some of the horror stories, but also hearing some of the positive things that you're sharing, you would not believe how receptive they are to have these conversations. Good. I'm glad. You know, I'd like to hear from you. What, in terms of the worst case scenario, what have you heard? Because I think hearing some of these stories is going to teach all of us. You know, from LGBTQI patients, as they tell some of these horror stories, what are they? Yeah. Fortunately, I'm in a cancer center that, it's a top-notch cancer center that we've really embraced SOGI data collection in the LGBT community very early on. And, and in many ways, we've led many of the NCI designated cancer centers. So our horror stories probably are not as horrific as what we've heard outside here. But some of the things we heard where providers just being, you know, facial expression, body expressions, when they find out that they're treating a, a lesbian woman and this is their wife sitting next to them and the reactions they've had, the provider to this lifestyle some of the even more egregious would be, which has happened not here, but I've heard stories from other members of the community where providers start quoting Bible verses Ooh. about their sinful lives. Jeez. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it, it's a snapshot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just terrible, <laughs> horrific things. And the more disheartening sort of anecdotal things we observed is patients who just had poor experiences because of who they are and the way their providers acted towards them and not following up. And we know how critical at the time of diagnosis is to continue with your care, to continue with your follow-up and walking away from life-saving treatment in many cases. And, you know, none of this belongs in healthcare. Discrimination, religious bias, none of this belongs in a healthcare setting. You're right. Absolutely. In terms of health disparities, I agree with you, and I think most of us do, that there definitely are different. The care is different as a whole for the LGBTQI population. But tell us more about it, if you would. 
Sure. Yeah, thanks. I think this is very important for providers. So unfortunately, the literature, as you well imagine, is sparse because this has been an underserved population for so long. Thankfully, over the last, especially over the last five, six years, you can see the amount of literature published on cancer and LGBT medical has just been exponential. But among all of this, there's lots of important things that we can glean, that there's at least seven specific cancer sites that disproportionately affect the LGBTQ population. I'll say it in alphabetical order because that's the only one I can remember. It's anal, breast, cervical, colorectal, endometrial, lung, and prostate. So those are what we call the big seven. But I could almost guarantee it's probably more than that because we're not collecting sexual orientation and gender identity on a large national level. So I think once more and more institutions collect this and we start bringing this data, I think forward we will probably identify more cancer sites. So those are the cancer sites that are disproportionately affected. As far as sort of other things that are related to health disparity, it's are, are things like cancer risk factors. We know that there's many cancer risk factors that are higher in the LGBTQ population, things like tobacco use, alcohol use. BMI appears to be higher, especially among lesbian women compared to cisgender. Higher rates of HIV and HPV. So we know that risk factors tend to be higher, that the rates of cancers can be higher. The LGBT community population is less likely to seek early detection modalities, which we know are life-saving, mm -hmm. and less likely to seek health care, much like we see in lower SES populations or racial and ethnic minorities. The LGBT population is more likely to seek health care at the emergency, at emergency centers rather than through primary care or through early detection. If you factor out SES differences and geography and things like that, what is at the root of people, LGBTQI patients, not accessing care? No, that's a great question. Unfortunately, we don't have data to accurately point towards, but there's many things that we can sort of surmise from that. If we sort of factor out SES, we're talking about intersexuality too, intersectionality when yes. we talk about SES, racial, ethnic minorities, geography, and the LGBT, we have all these intersectionality issues. There's probably not a common theme, but there's probably a lot of things that we, like I've already talked about, the fact that these are population, for instance, the, the issue of smoking and higher consumption of alcohol comes down to in many cases, self-esteem issues, that this is a population under stress, has low self-esteem, they're going to drink more and smoke more. This is a population, as, tr as, as trivial as this may sound, um, this is a population that has more sun-seeking behavior. We know how lethal sun-seeking behavior is. It's considered a carcinogen at the same level as cigarette smoke because of self-esteem issues, that they're more likely to seek sun-seeking behaviors. Uh, so th these are just a couple examples of what are driving some of these health disparities. And again, that probably if there was some overarching, this is the population that hasn't had access to health care, much like cisgender heterosexual populations. And then when they do, they don't use it because of all the issues that we sort of talked about earlier. Yeah. You know, if I wanted to ask this question, but to talk about all these other important things first, it's a real basic one. Teach us a little bit about the terminology. Uh, LGBTQ people, I think uh, uh, people are, have gotten used to. Firstly, what is the Q? What's the I? And are <laughs> there other groups? Right. Yeah. So whenever I give a presentation on this topic, usually one of the first or second slides, I have a bullet about there is no universally 
agreed upon acronym. So this alphabet soup can move around. Actually, the orders of the letters can actually move around. Uh-huh. And so it can be as simple as LGB, which is lesbian, gay, and bisexual. And then it can go all the way up to LGBT, transgender individuals. You could add the Q on there, which is queer, sometimes also questioning. And then also the I is intersect. And the intersect has been a it's been a provocative um, group to include in this. When I started in this field about 10 years ago, the I was actually included, the intersex. These are individuals that are born with anatomy of both sexes. And then there was pushback from patient advocate groups, particularly parents of, of intersex children, that, that they didn't want the I included into the LGBT community. And then now it's been sort of full circle. It's back in there. And so, you know, it goes to sort of the premise that this is a dynamic and fluid group that there is no agreed upon acronym. And these letters often get dropped and added and changed and have multiple meetings. Sometimes you'll see the A in there for allies and sort of what the NIH, and I'll add on, and what the NIH did several years ago, they created a umbrella term called sexual gender minorities or SGMs. It's, it's largely used in the research space. I'll ask SGM, you know, I'll, I'll ask LGBT members, uh, whether they're p- cancer patients or just a part of the community, and they're like, I don't know what SGM means. I've never heard this before. So it's something that's used in the research term, but it's a term to sort of capture the entire umbrella, the entire rainbow. This is That's why they use the rainbow flag, because it's all these yeah, different yeah. flavors and colors. I mean, the, the diversity of that flag represents the diversity of this community. By the way, it's a very good reminder that for all the sensitivity that we should have, that we need to have for SGM, that there's a lot of diversity within that community, maybe more diversity than congruency. Absolutely. And another thing that I sort of always emphasize is that this is a group that is across all ages, all geographies, all states, all countries. This is a very diverse, very large population. Absolutely. In taking care of patients with cancer, LGBTQI, SGM, patients with cancer, what are some of the uh, special kind of challenges that our patients face with cancer care, with blood cancers, for example? You know, it's sort of a recurring theme. I think the first is having that comfortable conversation, a welcoming environment with the healthcare provider, not just the healthcare provider, the entire healthcare system from the moment they walk in, uh, meeted with those the volunteers all the way up to the front desk, to the nurses, to their oncologists. It's about having this welcoming environment that's inclusive and showing that they're going to receive top quality care because we know the data bore out that they typically are not Uh, receiving the same quality of care that other and ensuring that there's confidentiality in what they're reporting to their health care providers and that the information that they're shared, it's between like any other patient provider relationship that it's between those two individuals. So I, I think those are very two key and important aspects to delivering high quality care. And these are what we provide as recommendations to improve cancer care to this population. And for caregivers, family members and caregivers of LGBTQI patients in the cancer setting, again, what are some of the challenges they face? Right. Well, caregivers kind of like you asked early on, what am I supposed to ask? 
what do I know and what I don't know. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, for everything that we know, there's probably two or three things we don't know. There's always challenges in this population because, one, we just don't have a lot of data on them. There's not NCCN guidelines focused on LGBT. Most of the NCCN guidelines do not even address the LGBT community in there. Yes, um, right. So, yeah, so I think this is important. And, you know, I'm not a medical oncologist. I'm an epidemiologist. And I've had phone calls from medical oncologists asking, I have a transgender patient who's on hormones and we want to start chemotherapy. What's the recommendations out there? And I can't provide it to it because they don't exist because we don't know. So this is a huge disservice to the population because we don't have enough information about some of the really finite, important aspects of when it comes to providing high quality care. So by the way, very good point about NCCN guidelines. And so much of what we do now is guideline driven. But best I know, they really don't address uh, sort of cultural issues either. And so... So your point, I, I'm assuming you, you'd be an advocate, and I think I'm joining in line for NCCN to have that. Oh, well, 100%. We actually published a paper several years ago in the journal of the NCCN where we did a systematic survey of all the chairs of all the NCCN panels to see, do you, are you addressing the LGBT population? Do you plan to address it? And obviously, the responses were dismal, very few uh, address LGBTQ population and plan to address it. There were a few. The AYA, mm -hmm. for instance, mm -hmm. does it. Interestingly, one of the population, one of the panels said they didn't address LGBTQ. And then when we reviewed all the NCCN guidelines, one of the panels said they didn't actually did. So it was an interesting little tidbit in there. But um, yeah, absolutely. To the point I'm going to make here is exactly what you said. We strongly encourage the NCCN guidelines, each of the panels, to look at this and how they can improve uh, their guidelines to address this LGBTQ population. Yeah, thank you. Legal issues faced by uh, patients in this community. What are some of those? Yeah, this is a very complex and unfortunately troubling area. Prior to the, the Affordable Care Act, and a lot of things were not available to the LGBTQ, things that they need, particularly in, in their environment. At the national level, there are not federal laws that are going to protect this population when it comes to many of the things that they need in, in their day-to-day, -day, not just day-to-day -day life, but also in their health care. There's been laws at the federal level and the state level Things like the Religious Freedom Acts, which allow providers license to discriminate against this population. So unfortunately, this is a population that in many cases, in many states, are allowed to be discriminated against. And until we have comprehensive federal laws, it's going to continue that way because we know that we're not going to see all 50 states coming up with their individual state laws that are going to protect this population. We know they don't exist right now. They probably won't. So until we have something happening at the federal level, there's going to be open licenses to discriminate against this population. Yeah, thank you. And finally, I did want to talk about uh, colors. What is colors? What's the training all about? Sure. Uh, so colors, this has been a process that's been going on for many, many years that we started with the goal of providing high quality care to oncologists. And so this all started out, we did a national survey many years ago to get a focus on oncologists to sort of gauge their knowledge and attitudes and practice behaviors towards the LGBT population. 
and their attitudes were largely very positive. They were receptive to be listed as an LGBT-friendly provider. They wanted to know more information. They wanted to receive training. In some cases, high proponents wanted to receive mandatory training, but their knowledge was actually quite low about this population. So we looked at this as just a perfect opportunity to develop our training, which is a very It's a great interactive, high-quality training. It's a two-hour-long process where we have four modules focused on providing cultural competency training Mm -hmm. towards the LGBT population for oncologists. So, so by the way, I've seen it, and it's really really good. So, so, uh, terrific program. Matt, what are some other resources? Uh, Colors is excellent, but what are some other resources for oncologists and to hopefully do a more culturally competent job with our patients? Sure. I think since our population here that we're talking to today are providers, I think it'd be important to list a variety of great networks and resources that are available to providers. I already mentioned the Fenway Institute. There's the National LGBTQ Cancer Network. There's Cancer Care, and there's the LGBT Cancer Network as well. Of course, LLS. I think these are all phenomenal resources that are not just for providers, but also for patients as well. I have to say, this has been an incredibly interesting episode for me, one that's relevant to what I do as an oncologist. So again, I want to thank uh, Dr. Matt Shabath, who is a member of the faculty at the Moffitt Cancer Center and an epidemiologist. Matt, thanks so much. This is Dr. Ken Miller. I'd like to thank all of you for listening to this important episode. And we hope you can take this information back to your practice and incorporate it with your patients for a listing of all of our healthcare professional podcasts, including education activities and healthcare professional resources. Please visit lls.org CE. For any questions to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatment, financial, and other support resources. The LLS, CLL, and MCL copay assistance funds are now open. LLS may be able to help you pay your patients insurance premiums and copays if they are in active treatment or being monitored for watch and wait or follow-up care. And for more information on program eligibility and how to apply, please visit lls.org slash copay or lls.org slash copagos, C-O-P-A-G-O-S. And finally, I encourage you to sign up to receive a notification of additional podcast episodes by subscribing at www.treatingbloodcancers.org. LLS also offers a series of podcasts for patients and families at lls.org forward slash podcast. And we look forward to having you join us on future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.